It's November 6th, 2006, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to a, another episode, and a very special episode of The Candid Frame. When I started the show back in, in February, um, I wanted really to have an opportunity to have dialogue with a lot of photographers that I, whose work I really liked and admired. And among those photographers is my guest today, which is uh, Joel Meyerwitz. And it really is a, a, a blessing for me to have the chance to, to talk to him because his work is, is work that I've long admired and uh, have always tried to, to emulate in a lot of my own work. Um, Joe Meyerowitz is known primarily as, as, as a street photographer, and he's often compared to a lot of his contemporaries, including Robert Frank and uh, Gary Winogrand. But Joel, beginning in the, in the early 60s, uh, his work was primarily in color rather than in black and white, and he was um, one of the key photographers, along with William Eggleston, who uh, in the 70s, um, showed that color could be just in a, as an effective tool in documentary and in in street photography as as was uh, black and white photography up to that point. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out his work, I certainly uh, recommend that you do. Um, if you can pick up some of his older monographs, some of which may be out of print, but some of them are still uh, available. And I really recommend that you take a look at this work because it's really, really phenomenal work. And, um, and, but the, the, the bulk of the conversation today is going to be about his most recent work, uh, which has just been published in a book called Aftermath. Um, and Aftermath is a documentary, uh, documentary photographs produced at Ground Zero in New York City. And Joel was the only photographer to have authorization to be on site um, during the immediate days after, after 9-11 and the recovery effort and then the um, the attempts to clear out the area in preparation for um, rebuilding and um, his story and his images are are going to be particularly important uh, and not just for you know the obvious reasons of, of historical significance uh, I think in terms of photographers from a photographer's perspective you really get to recognize the importance of, of photography and not only for for the sake of documenting an, an event uh, such as 9-11 for us, but for all future generations. I, I think the fact that that he had to be really tenacious and persistent in, in, in insisting that he have access to that site is really important. Um, at first, there was a lot of resistance in terms of the politicos not wanting access to give access to photographers to that site because they thought that they were going to um, not respect um, the fact that this was really not only a, a, a crime scene, but a place where you know thousands of people had died, and they didn't want people really taking advantage of it for their own sort of personal gain. And Joel has to be really commended for for really making an effort to not only be there to take the images, despite despite the resistance he was he was being met, but recognizing that these images served a grander purpose other than being able to fill the front page of a newspaper or 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 ending up in, in some sort of book that he would receive a bunch of glory for. 
Um, he really recognized that there was a need, an emotional need, uh, for these pictures to be made and to be seen. And if you haven't picked up the book, I really recommend that you do it. Um, personally, I, I, I love photo books, but I can't afford um, many as many as I used to. But this book, I made the exception for. And I think that... I think you should as well. So if, if, even if you don't buy the book, I suggest you go to a bookstore or go to your local library and pick it up. And if your local library doesn't have it, I suggest that you insist that they have a copy there because I think it's a, a significant part of our history and it's an exceptional work of, of photography. So uh, I know you're going to enjoy this interview. I know I had a great time uh, interviewing Joel. And... Um, with no further ado, here's our interview with Joel Myers. Um, well, thank you for making the time and sure. fitting me in your schedule. It's great to be here. Um, one of the things I want to start off with is you tell the story of how you got turned on to photography, how you um, had an opportunity to see Robert Frank um, doing some work, and then that led you to, you know, quit what you were doing. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious to hear about what it was that you witnessed that resonated for you that led you to do it because you weren't actually seeing the images you were just seeing something in the, in the way that he was working or what he was doing that kind of triggered something in with you did you rec do you know what that was at the time or, or did you discover yeah. what it may have been later no I, I knew instantly what it was although probably is that a problem no I knew I knew instantly that the shock of recognition was that he was moving and taking pictures. It wasn't that he was saying, hold still, turn your head, lift your chin. He, he made none of those um, strategies visible. All he was doing was moving like a dancer and taking photographs. And each time I heard the little tiny tick of the Leica, I would see over his shoulder, during that little click moment, a kind of freezing of an image. And it was astonishing because I, I, I heard the sound and I witnessed the moment. And I saw that life was being intercepted by the tick of the shutter. And when I left there and I went out on the street, I was walking along and watching life and I was making little mental clicks and freezing moments and that's what was so exciting to me the possibility that you could move through life and make gestures towards the flow of life and extract from it something that was of a singular moment an observation and maybe I was you know always trying to get something like that in painting as well but I didn't quite see how to mm -hmm. do it and I see that in a lot of your work, particularly a lot of your, your street photography, in, is, is that finding that, that momentary juxtaposition of light, of shape, of movement, and making something out of apparent randomness or chaos into something mm -hmm. substantive, something that evokes a, an emotion uh, in someone. And I was wondering how that particular sort of aesthetic mm -hmm. um, helped you in, in your project documenting the aftermath of 9-11 of, of in terms of being all of a sudden being put in the midst of something that was overwhelming not just visually but, but emotionally as well. Hmm. 
Well, you know, this, this um, instinct to react to something is really what photography has as its, one of its greatest assets. I think ambiguity is another of photography's great assets. But the, the instinctive recognition of meaning to the individual, not necessarily meaning to the rest of the public that looks at it, but one recognizes one's uh, common connection to something. It's personal, but it's, it's, it's your clarification. And if it's not emotion, it's maybe form. If it's not form, it's maybe content. If it's not content, it's maybe a projection of other possibilities of meaning in the culture. So there are lots of dimensions to this instantaneous recognition. That's part of the joy of making photographs in the wilds of the street. Bringing that same sensibility inside Ground Zero meant that I had to kind of expand it somewhat because not everything was gestural and singular moments. There were things that were more static, that resonated in a different way. Nonetheless, being a street photographer allows me to make sort of immediate decisions about what is necessary. What's necessary to me, to the larger demands of the project, to making, in this case, a historical record. I was assembling all of the elements of something that would hopefully be larger and more useful in this larger way. So I was trying to be, I don't know, more perceptive. In a way, I was taxing myself because I had never done a project of this dimension before. Small as it was in, in physical scale, it also had this abundance in terms of a historic utility. So I, I think I used that skill set of being quick to hone in on the possibility of something and then dogged in being persistent about going towards it and saying, well, maybe i got to move over here and get a little closer or pull back and add more of this information. Because I, I see these pictures as very much one-to-one -one scale pictures. I didn't use a telephoto lens. I used a lens that represented where I stood is what I saw. And I wanted the deep space of what I was looking at to be part of the resonance of these pictures. Mm -hmm. So in a way, there was a strategy there of all-inclusiveness. One of the things that you were talking about, and look, looking at the images, you see that they're, they're sort of they're tied in with so many images that have been created of, of, of large-scale human endeavors. Uh, you mentioned the FSA, you know, a voice striker, and you know, during the, the during the depression. But especially in New York, there have always been photographers who have documented things like the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, the Empire State Building. Um, with uh, Sebastian Salgado, he did that series on the on the channel, and all serving as a, as a form of documentation for historical purposes. Mm -hmm. But when hearing you speak last night and reading the book, I also saw that you recognized that that you as a photographer with, with your cameras were serving as the eye for a lot of people who had experienced 9-11 but didn't have the opportunity of being there. Yeah. That somehow there was sort of uh, beyond, beyond your role as a, as a photographer to document, 
that you were sort of serving as a way to fulfill a, an emotional need in some respects that, that, that the people who had experienced 9-11, whether they were in New York or elsewhere, sort of um, needed filled. Um, is, is that the way you saw it? I, or you you're absolutely right. I, I, I had, I mean, you know, we're all so vulnerable as people, and here was this huge wound in New York's body, in a sense. And then the city demanded that nobody go near it. And people couldn't really grieve. They couldn't come close to it. There was a zone that they were kept out of. There was a time when they couldn't even go below Canal Street. You know, it's like, it was just as if radiation was in there and they were protecting the city. But I felt so keenly that they were depriving everybody of this chance to actually see the place and to grieve, to take the wound in, 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 in a very personal way. And, you know, it's just, it seems so wrong-headed to me that, that the, the, the government was suspicious that these people were going to be there as a kind of uh, you know, onlookers who were going to, you know, just be perverse in their in their looking at the site, and and I think that's to distrust the basic human need to make contact with the things that are happening right in your in your very moment that you need to understand by being there. So I thought if I'm the eye inside this place, if I manage to get in to make this archive, the archive shouldn't just be a document that's a cold accounting of the elements down there, but that it should be one that allows me to transfer to the viewer some of the emotional potential that the site had. I mean, I really felt that this was the bigger calling, that it wasn't just me doing it um, to sort of make the accounting of all the parts, but to also account for the human feelings that were you know, available to everybody. And, you know, I, I've always been a photographer less interested in the academic and formal side of photography than for the feelingful side. I always opt for feeling. I think my pictures have in them, at the risk of sentimentality, which I try to avoid, nonetheless, I think people are suspicious of feeling and beauty. They've become sort of no-nos in the modern contemporary art world. And so if you make pictures that evoke some form of beauty, people are suspicious of it. Well, it's not, not so tough. And you see a lot of flat-footed, boring fucking photography out in the world today that passes as conceptual or you know, high-value uh, art world photography. And I look at most of that stuff and I think, these guys are bored. They have nothing to say. They're walking around formulaically making, you know, bands of uh, modern life, you know, industrial things or supermarkets or, I mean, I don't, I don't give a shit if it's Gursky or, you know, uh, any, any of the others who are playing that game. It's like, most of that stuff bores the shit out of me. <laughs> um, looking um, at your work, you come from the school of street photography, which all immediately comes to mind is photographers like Robert Frank, Gary Winogrand. Um, Henri uh, Cartier-Bresson, mm -hmm. but 
what I really like about your images is, is your use of color. Um, and the images, color art isn't the dominant force in the image. Yeah. Uh, it really is sort of complementary to all the different elements, the, the, the moment, the movement, the, the light, um, all, of, all of that. Yeah. And so it's that particular aesthetic has sort of developed um, with some of the landscape works that you did and, and, and the portraits yeah. uh, that you did. How do you see color playing a role in your photography and why didn't you decide to use black and white in documenting um, you know, the pile? Well, I'll go from the back of the question forward. If I had used black and white, the pile and all of the considerations in, you know, around the pile would have been kept in the tone of tragedy. I think black and white would have been a real limitation. Everything would have been gray. We wouldn't have had a sense of the reality of what was there. And, and you know, things were aging as they were there. Things were rusting. Things that had been hidden inside the building's skin for all those years had fallen and they were out there in the elements and they started to go through their mutation. And it was important to see the qualities of the, the surfaces and materiality of these things. And more than anything, I'm a realist. I think of myself as an urban realist. I look at what's in front of me and I photograph just that. I don't even think of color in the sense of, oh, there's a hot piece of color over there, I'm gonna like jam it in. You know, it's, it's, all, it's all sound. It's all the racket of everyday street life. You know, people are wearing gray suits and silver ties, and along comes a woman, and you know, whatever, she's wearing a yellow dress, and she's got a blue hat. And it's, like, it's not about the individual colors, it's about the mix of the whole thing. And, and you know, when I first started, my very first roll of film in 1962, it was a roll of color film. I didn't know any better. I borrowed, when I went back to my office, after the scene Robert Frank, I borrowed the camera of my senior art director, Harry Gordon. He loaned me his Asahi Pentax camera. I went downstairs, I bought a couple of rolls of color film, probably ectochrome or something like that. Stuck it in the camera and I went out photographing trying to figure out how to make pictures. And then I could get the stuff processed right away within two or three hours. Mm -hmm. I could see the pictures that night. I wanted the immediate gratification that I could get because I had no technical experience. I didn't know about dark rooms and printing or any of that. So I just wanted to see the pictures. I knew about slide projectors. You know, we had one in the office. It wasn't difficult to go buy a slide projector and start looking at the pictures. But the original voice of the medium for me was in color. It was only a year later when I realized that it was very intangible up on the screen. People didn't get up and walk over to look at the thing that was there. They would sit 10 feet away and look at the picture and, and not make any more curious investigation. Meanwhile, I had become friendly with Gary, and I was handling prints, 11 by 14 prints of Gary's, and I was looking, reading the print, and I thought, oh, this is what I want for color. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was too expensive. I was a kid, I didn't have a job. 
So I started to shoot black and white and make prints so I could see prints. But I kept on feeling, where's the color? I, I want the color. And so I continued to shoot black and white and color in two cameras. By that time I was able to get two Leicas. And I carried you know, one in color and one in black and white. And I was experimenting all along with what's the difference. If I could make a picture that was static enough for me to make one in color and one in black and white, because quick moving pictures disappear, you can't make the same picture twice. I was trying to see what the two of them meant. What was the difference between color and black and white? I was actually asking the questions about how the information gets to us. And I don't just mean it's transferred to us, but how does it get to the feelings we have? Mm -hmm. and, and intuitively, I understood that color film, I'll, I'll back up a step, if we accept the premise that photography describes things, press the button, describes what's in front of you, mm -hmm. the light, the shadow, the colors, the space, all of that. If it describes things, then color describes more things. Because it has the addition of the color wrapping the content of whatever form it's on. So I was saying, thinking there's more content available in a color photograph. Just in sheer uh, numbers of the data, there's more data in the color picture. And so I, I assumed whether this is right or wrong, I don't know, but I assume that what comes off of the color photograph touches us in, in memory ways that we don't immediately recognize, but there are certain things. You, you, may, you may remember the apron that your mother wore when she was baking you know, muffins, mm -hmm. and you associate the smell of muffins and your mother's apron in a way, and that particular washed out shade of pink, green, or whatever, has a particular effect on you. That's not easily accounted for, but it's in you in some way. And maybe we are like that with everything. Mm -hmm. Why we choose certain colors to wear, or the way we are pleased by certain tones when we enter a room. You know, in, in ways they're like sound too there are certain sounds that are jarring and screeching and noisy and you don't want to listen to and other things give you a sense of harmony and peace and I think color operates it kind of explains um, something I've heard you say in terms that you when you go out shooting you're not looking really using your eyes as much as you're using your emotions your reaction your emotional reaction mm -hmm. to what it was in front of you well I had I had uh, one of those transforming experiences about this thing, not using my eyes. We all look when you look through the camera, but when I was working in St. Louis in 1970, must have been 77 or 78, I was walking down the street and I had the sense that I should stop here. And it was nothing that I saw. It was as if I walked into a zone of pressure, where all the things that were, all the lines of sight radiating from the tops of the buildings and from the shadows and from the architecture, and all that stuff seemed to be focused in a 
point in space that I was passing through. And when I hit that point in space, there was some sense of, hmm, wow, this feels good. And when I walked through it three feet further, I lost it. I had to come back to feel the sense of what feels right about this space. It's like Feng Shui or something. It's, mm-hmm. it's about the volumes and proportions of a place or a space that make you feel as good when you enter it. And I, I thought, what would it be like if I put my camera down here and then looked in it to see what I saw, rather than seeing an object that was, oh, that's a good object, I'll take a picture of it and I'll add something over here to it, which was part of a strategy. Does that fall in line time-wise with your Cape Light series? Yes, I started in Cape Light in 1976, and then that later that year, with my friend Colin Westerbeck, who I'm going to see this afternoon at the Getty, we began to do the work on, um, on Bystander. And so we went out to St. Louis on a sort of a, a, a busman's holiday. We went to do a little research in some of the local historical archives just to see. I, I had a free trip to St. Louis. I said, come on, let's go do this research. I'll do the job. We'll do the research, and we'll see what we can think. So I was in, in, and from that I began to do this work in St. Louis. So I think one thing led to another. But, but they are, you know, um, in the same period of time. Uh, one being open space landscape and the other being urban. So it was an interesting uh, sort of collision for me because I wanted to see how to use the view camera in a city. It doesn't like cities, you know, it's so right. slow. So I wanted to tax it and test it and see if I could make interesting photographs in a city. So it was my own personal evolution. And in the course of that, you know, as you're a photographer, you know these things. You make certain discoveries either in your behavior or in the pictures that you make comes a revelation. And one way or the other, you begin to make an adaptation to your strategies or your working methods or the materials or the cameras or whatever it is, right? But you you adjust. Everybody goes through some change like this. I remember when Deanne Arbus left the 35 millimeter camera for the two and a quarter. Because she wanted something else, a little more formal, a little a little bit blockier to be able to uh, create a different space around her people. Well, I remember her, the struggles that she had going from one two and a quarter to another because we were mm. friends during that time. And, you know, these, this was an issue for her. It's, do, do I look down into the camera this way or do I look in through the back of the camera? What's my relationship to the person? Yeah. Is it better if I'm talking to them with no camera in front of me and I just look down, you know, so that they look at me? Or you know, She was looking at the subtle... Uh, shifting of the energy that would flow from subject to observer to the medium, the triangulation of that. And I think all of us make these adjustments. And brings up the inter- interesting idea that portraits are, are really a collaboration between the photographer and, and, this, and the yeah. subject. And the project, um, the, the, the aftermath project, the 911 project, that really is, those are images that are largely a result of collaboration. You know, 
not only of the people who chose, you know who allowed you to photograph them, but just the people who were working, the men and women who were working there, yeah. who working in conjunction with you helped you to create create those images. And I'm wondering if you could just speak more uh, on that on that particular aspect of, of the project, because so much yeah. of of your work otherwise has been pretty much just you and your camera. Yeah. But here you are working with hundreds, thousands of people, yeah. and basically to help you create these 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 photographs. Well, you know, artists are generally solitary types. We like being alone or with a friend, or, but you know, working in connection to our feelings and our instincts. But when I went into Ground Zero, I was no longer alone. I was there with the same group of players day after day, 800 to 1,000 people in that site. And certainly not all of them knew me, nor I them, but I became a frequent, you know, figure in that place. People recognized that guy with the wooden camera. And, uh, and in, a, in a sense, I became part of their group. I sublimated my individuality to the group um, team sense, and you know, I, I played I played ball in high school and college and sandlot ball before that, and I love being part of a team. It's great to make a double play. You know, there's there's a real connection, and you work this thing out so that you and your team members know exactly where to be and how to move and, and what to expect from each other. And I missed that. Being a, an artist, in a way, I missed the team thing. And here I was inside Ground Zero, and I let myself become absorbed into this larger team. And that was important. It helped, it helped reduce my ego in the sense of being an artist, and it allowed me to be connected to men, for the most part, who I don't any longer... In, in my mature life, spend time with these are really, you know, working blue collar guys. Basically, from the neighborhood that I grew up in in the Bronx, you know, that was this is who I was when I was a kid. And becoming an artist and changing my life has taken me away from that connection. So there I was in it again, and it really felt good. It felt like mm. home in some very basic way. I mean, we all talk like this, and we were, you know, <laughs> we gave ourselves. I mean, they were, but I, I was able to like go back to something that was so basic and earthy and regular without any of the pretense and cerebration that you use when you're talking to your peers who are concerned with issues that you're concerned with. So it was a very earthy, connected feeling. And I think that the sweet spot of that helped bring me into a kind of union with these men. And it enabled these pictures to be made. I mean, really, there's only in the book there's probably 30 or 40 portraits, but there's hundreds of portraits that are, were made, and made in the most innocent way. You know, I didn't do a Dick Avedon and go into a studio with them or take them away, wherever they were. The guy stand there raking, and he looked important to me in terms of his gesture or his weariness or whatever moved me. I made his picture. And, and I wasn't trying to make heroicized photographs, you know. It wasn't about bigger than life. It was, these are the guys. This is, this is what it takes. This is humanity doing its stuff, mm -hmm. you know. 
I mean, if you get down low and you start looking up, you make them noble in some way, it's, it falsifies some dimension of the site. And they didn't need to be made more noble. Their work made them noble. You know, their fatigue was a sign of the, their effort and their latent, you know, it wasn't grand heroics. It was ordinary, everyday heroics, you know, like, I'm down here, I'm doing this, you know. I'm pulling the rake through the rubble, you know, I'll just keep doing it until I find something. It's like, wow. So trying to recognize the humility of the, the workers and the task they took was actually part of what is in the portraits. It isn't, it isn't about bigness, you know. Very interesting, because at the very beginning of Ground Zero, some photographer, O'Neill, not sure, some guy, went down there with a huge, large-format Polaroid, and he made these life-size pictures, you know, it's every man a hero. I thought it was bullshit. I really thought it was absolute bullshit, because, I mean, they, they were just workers, and they didn't need to be made into these, you know, bronze statues of workers. They were just guys, and, and they should have just been seen in the, in the fabric of the place itself. That's what I would have done by, yeah. by myself. You know, like, show, show us. But to take them out and sterilize them by putting them in a, no, a no-seam environment seemed to me to be an, an effort to make it bigger than life. And it was already incredibly big. Yeah, and I think you, you, you kind of touched on what part of the experience was for you and likely all those other people involved in, in the recovery and the cleanup was was somehow combating the sense of powerlessness. Yeah. By um, actually becoming involved, particularly in a physical way, to to the you know to, to what was happening, somehow allowed them to in some way deal with some of the feelings that they had but in reading the, the book last night I saw uh, a quote of one of the one of the men who was really concerned that, that after almost a year of working on, on the site that he was really worried that some of the men would turn self-destructive you know, would take a lot yeah. of that stuff internally and I'm wondering for, for you um, since you were pretty much going through the same experience as, as they were um you know, after after that last day, and you returned back to, you know, to to your home and going through the images, did all of a sudden you feel like some emotions that you hadn't sort of dealt with during that time come up for you? Did you did you feel yourself at all dealing with any anxiety or depression after it was after the work itself was was done? I I, I wouldn't. You know, anxiety and depression aren't. Uh, the signals that came up out of not doing the work. There was definitely um, something like you're motoring along on this beautiful adventure that you're out to have, and then suddenly the road falls away, and you come to this abrupt stop, maybe even fall off, you know, and there was definitely a free fall experience of what do I do with my life now it was so engaging it was so necessary I felt that same strong 
passion that I had when I was a young man and photography was incredibly new to me. I had rekindled that in a way that, although I'm still fascinated by photography regularly, the leap of passion, the, the leap of energy was, you know, really unusual doing this work. So I, I felt rejuvenated. And so when that was over, there was a kind of um, spaciousness suddenly. And, and, that, and that was the concern of that chief, that fire chief, or that these men who, you know, have routine lives normally, they either fight fires or they're construction workers who build uh, shopping malls, suddenly were inside Ground Zero and they were doing meaningful work for a cause. So the cause lifts everybody up in a kind of heightened sense of being useful. And then it's going to be taken away mm -hmm. from them. And their life is going to be back to doing the same old, you know, uh, put this four-story mall structure up and who gives a shit, you know, it's just work. And I, I think he was seeing that you know, the noble cause retreats to a kind of ordinary back to reality, doing it for the money, and it doesn't have any longer a... Mm. Uh, uh, the open-heartedness is evaporated. And, and I think that's what happened to me, too. Uh, I suddenly started having this longing for those excited days in the beginning when the pile was stinking and smoking and everything was visually exciting. And, you know, not that I wanted it to happen again, but it was like, that's when we all became invested with the reason for being in there. It's a, so it's, it's a subtle thing. I mean, probably you've experienced something like that when a project you've been working on for a long time, which is giving you a sense of fulfillment, somehow comes to its climax or, or it loses its momentum for you and you realize, oh, it's over. I've, um, I've eaten that meal now so many times. I'm not hungry for that any longer. And then when you're free of it, you miss it in some way. You wish you wish and, and you're lost, you don't know what you're going to do next or whatever, and you have to be, you become passive after being active. And passive is good. Passive is a time of reflecting on what you've actually done and considering what you might do next. It's the, it's the, uh, the hallway between the two spaces, and it's hell in the hallway. <laughs> well, the way I like to, to end each interview is by asking, um, photographer to recommend another photographer who they think um, people sh should sort of explore. So who is that for you and, and why? Uh, are we talking about contemporary photographers or any Anyone. photographer historically? Anyone you want. Gosh, there are so many. And uh, I, I would say, and this is a real reach, I never would have thought of this before, but if this is going to be connecting to younger photographers, or student photographers, most likely. It's everyone. It's everyone, really. Yeah, but I think that O'Sullivan and Jackson, from the period of the Civil War into the 18... 70s and 80s and that westward expansion, the photographs they made out west, 
these are two men to reconsider because they were both kids. We tend to forget that Sullivan and Jackson, when they went to photograph the Civil War, they were like 19 and 21. Mm. And they had a camera which was only invented a few years before. They were like young video guys with a new instrument being thrown into Iraq or something like that. And, you know, they, they were inventing themselves and the medium. And they both made incredibly modern pictures. And then they went on to photograph in the West. And it's their photographs that helped create the park system in America, the national park system. And they had to fight unbelievable odds. In their early 20s, they were dealing with Indians, bandits, harsh weather conditions and travel conditions, unknown territory, renegade bands of ex-Union and Confederate soldiers. Um, and a technically challenging uh, photographic process. Right. Yeah. They had their mule train and their glass plates, which they had to coat, shoot, develop, fix, store, and travel with. And you know, when the mule train, when the wagon fell over into the river and all those plates were destroyed, don't think that these guys' hearts didn't just collapse from you know, all that effort that, that was destroyed. And so, in a way, they're incredibly uh, good models for people who were inventing a medium at, 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 in their most innocent youth, although they weren't innocent after the Civil War. Nonetheless, they are worth reconsidering. I mean, and there's tons of contemporary photographers that one might mention too, but there's, there's something really good about these guys. The other thing I would say, there's a wonderful website, maybe you know this, called In Public. You know In Public? Tell everybody to go to see In Public. It's uh, some young friends of mine in London, Matt Stewart, is the sort of the founder of it. And it's a website devoted to street photography. And it's a hot site showing great portfolios of you know, contemporaries of most of the people who might be listening to this uh, blog. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joel. It was, it was a real pleasure and honor to have a chance to speak with you. Yeah, fun for me too. A good guy. Well, thanks for joining, joining me for this, uh, for this special episode. If you have any comments or suggestions about this or any other of our, of our shows, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on our blog at thecandidframe.com. Until next time, this is Ivarian X. Perella, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com